0: Hello and welcome, you're listening to On Show, the Louvre Abu Dhabi podcast that takes you on a tour. For this first episode in our mini-series looking at the architecture of the Louvre Abu Dhabi, we've met up with Jean Nouvel, the museum's architect, for an exclusive tour of the museum. Exploring the permanent collections together, we discuss with Jean Nouvel his response to a historic challenge, namely building the first universal museum in the Arab world. Thank you very much, Jean Nouvel, for accompanying us on this tour of the Louvre Abu Dhabi and for sharing your views about this unbelievable building and its amazing construction. The first question I'd like to ask you is, what emotions do you still feel five years after the museum first opened?
1: I'm going to pretend I'm discovering it with you, five years later.
0: We're not quite in the museum galleries yet.
1: No, we're heading that way. At the moment, we're in the main gallery, the entrance gallery, or what is called the Grand Vestibule.
0: We're starting with the Grand Vestibule, a sort of introductory gallery.
1: Yes, this is the Grand Vestibule. It's intended to give you the key to understanding the rest of the museum. You can see some rather special glass display cases forming part of the geometric pattern on the floor, a white marble floor displaying an ancient map. And looking up to the ceiling, we see something quite dark. It's the dome seen from the inside. Looking through the holes, we can see the sky. Each display case features a comparison of three objects from approximately the same period and with roughly the same function, but from different civilizations. As this is a museum of civilizations, these civilizations are often presented together and in dialogue with each other. Unlike other museums
0: of civilizations, perhaps?
1: Unlike other museums of civilization which have not yet adopted this approach.
0: For you, what does it mean to be universal, because that's what the Louvre Abu Dhabi is all about.
1: What we've tried to do here is to use the quite extraordinary resources we have, the outstanding collections of the Louvre, and the various purchases the museum has made over time, and to present them wherever possible in an emotional way. This is intended to help people understand that these artifacts, taken together, want to say something. Referring to a time that was already complex, they show us that the world was not that small, that it already contained many civilizations independent of each other. These have been put together in subject areas which frequently have something in common, featuring artifacts that are fairly similar. Here we see several vases followed by items of a more religious nature. Time and again we find ourselves in periods marked by sculpture or things like that and which when brought together, allow such comparisons to be made.
0: Actually, we're taking a journey through time, starting with the oldest and arriving in the here and now.
1: Absolutely. It's chronological.
0: Perhaps we can continue our adventure in the galleries? What about stopping at the second chapter in this 12-chapter journey?
1: Yes, a journey in 12 galleries. And every time you move from one gallery to the next, you go through a passageway, like this one, that usually provides two outside views, allowing you to see the museum through these moucharabies, and what's going on from the other side. Some are well lit, others less so. Here you can see the reflection of everything opposite. And every time, there's a little quote like this telling us where we are and why we're here, so to speak.
0: There's always this interplay of transparency and interaction between the interior.
1: Perplexity is the beginning of knowledge. The
0: interplay between the interior and the exterior.
1: Yes, constant dialogues between the interior and the exterior. Here then, we've created these large glass ceilings, which allow us to control the light and try to create, I'd say, a grey and quite unusual light. This is interspersed with spotlights that add warmth. Amber colored, they give this impression of sunshine picking out the main pieces. So that's the geometry we use. And right in the middle, as if by chance, we find this large aperture that's going to take us either under the sky or under the dome.
0: An influx of light.
1: The sky. Under the sky.
0: For you, which gallery is the most representative, or perhaps your (laughs) favourite?
1: Well, this gallery is full of outstanding collections about Egypt.
0: I should point out that we're in the second chapter, which is all about the first great powers.
1: And also about Greece and Rome. These are indeed two very impressive galleries.
0: There's a very beautiful view from this gallery towards the next one. On our left, we see a statue of Gudea followed by Ramses, then a sphinx, and finally Greek statues, a view linking all these different civilizations.
1: We created compositions every time, aligning artifacts and using a precise geometry to tell us where we're going. This all creates a route based on desire, on making one discovery after another, sometimes with very special displays, like this one of a mummy, which require an exceptional scenography. There are displays that may appear to be more mysterious and more elaborate, as for instance with the mummy.
0: I get the impression that this notion of mystery is something important to you. All along the way, we get these glimpses of an outside world that cannot quite be defined.
1: When it comes to art, in my mind, we're always dealing with emotions, with notions of perception and sensation. There's always that question of why things are the way they are. And when it comes to art, it's a question with no answer. Art is a question that is asked, but there's never an answer. Just like architecture? Not like architecture, but like art. And anyway, architecture is a form of art. It really is art, though I don't think everyone would agree with that. In architecture, there's always a factor which really matters, the place, the location. And once you have a location, you start asking yourself, what am I going to do with that specific place? Because if it wasn't for that specific place and for those specific people, you wouldn't know what you were going to do there. That's why I believe that architecture is always something that comes from somewhere and not something that just drops from heaven. As a result, I started by thinking about what was already here, namely the sea, the sand, the sky, and consequently the cosmos. These basic elements were followed by the second building block, the Arab civilization, which is where I was right and then and from which I built everything here. I told myself that all these elements had to work together to create meaning and symbolism. That's how the dome came about, the white dome as a symbol of spirituality. And then there was that idea that I had, that a museum is always a neighborhood, a place where people meet, an agora. This means it can't be just a building with a door, it's an urban building, in the sense of urbanity, which is why there's this idea of a museum like a small town, like a small Arab medina in fact. All these elements come together and huddle up under the dome, and the dome itself is a sort of parasol protecting you from the sun, allowing you to walk around in comfort at all times. With these two principles in mind, I thus already had a clear direction. Then I said to myself, in this country, there's one thing that's important, and that's the sun. Coupled with the perception of night in the desert, I tried to highlight the features of the cosmos and the qualities linked to the movement of light. In the end, I said to myself, it's the movement of light that already ought to create the atmosphere of this mighty dome. Hence the invention of the dome with eight layers. The light which permeates through them each time has to seek a way through, giving the dome a vibrancy marveled at by everyone. Why does one element get smaller while another gets bigger? It's all about being aware of how light moves in the passing of the sun and the coming night.
0: It's also a phenomenon that's perceptible to the naked eye. In my mind, it's something that fills you with wonder. There's also an almost magical quality in the floating nature of the dome, in that you can't see exactly where it's resting.
1: That's something else. It's said that we don't know the weight of the sky, and we don't know where the sky rests either. And so, if it's a second sky, it's better not to know where it's resting as well. It's a sky under the sky. Actually, it rests on just four pillars. It's 100 meters in diameter or 180, I don't remember. 180. As these pillars are concealed, you get the feeling that the dome rests on the building. So, we don't know. It's a secret, actually. Where are the four pillars? We don't know. And we won't ever know. (laughs) And you will never know. Well, Then, it's all a question of museum design and precision. All this work with glass and bronze, with very, very sharp lines and minimalistic bases, means that we can put in everything we want, at the height we want, and still be as close as possible to each perfectly protected artefact. We're always working with stone, with bronze, with objects that you want to touch because you have the impression that there's nothing in the way is the presence of the artefact that brings the place to life. For me, all artefacts should feel at home here. They should basically be able to do what they want. Some are asleep, some are waiting for us, some have been waiting a bit too long and have lost a limb, but they're all here anyway. And this also allows us to carry on comparing the same artefacts from civilizations we don't have the same form of expression. If we look at a man's head, like these here, we realize that the way beauty is expressed is not the same.
0: Yes, we can really see that in this display case presenting different cultures, looking at different forms of human representation and different philosophies. We can see this in the faces that look back at us in this gallery of portraits from different civilizations. Yes,
1: and each time we can see the characteristics of each civilization in these faces.
0: For you today, what is the place of the Louvre Abu Dhabi in your career as an architect? It was a project that lasted 10 years, even a bit longer.
1: For me, all projects are unique. You can't invent a place, you can't invent a location, you you can't invent. Well, for me, every project I've done has been both very important and pivotal. However, the Louvre Abu Dhabi as a museum of civilizations and as an adventure, was an outstanding project, an utterly exceptional project in terms of the ambitions put into it and to which I committed myself with great pleasure. Having spent the best part of 10 years of my life on it, it's one of my favorite children, but there are lots of them.
0: Thank you very much for giving us this interview.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: This was an episode of On Show, the Louvre Abu Dhabi podcast that takes you on a tour. Did you know that the museum's dome is as heavy as the Eiffel Tower and that it had to be jacked up in one piece to place it on its four pillars? Find out more in the second episode of our mini-series dedicated to the architecture of the Louvre Abu Dhabi. It features architect Halawade, jean Nouvel's associate and director of the project. On Show is now available on your favourite podcast platforms. Simply subscribe to the Louvre Abu Dhabi channel to discover or rediscover our past episodes and to ensure you don't miss the next ones. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and give us a five star rating. On Show is a podcast produced by the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Executive production by Amin Karchash and myself, Marine Baudou. Recording by Amin Karchash and Richard Hagen. Post production music and mixing by Making Waves. A warmest thanks to Jean Nouvel for giving us this interview. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episodes.